This is the Out of Water Podcast. Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I am joined today by Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. And we're ready to roll. We're ready to roll. We're jumping into, we're continuing we just finished up Abraham. In fact, he's going to die in today's chapter. That sounds kind of dismissive, doesn't it? Yeah, you kind of just, I don't know, didn't feel like we gave him enough respect for the last however many weeks we spent with him. Yeah, I like Abraham. He's all over the place, all throughout his life. He's the He is the picture of this great man of faith to whom we're kind of to aspire because he does have outrageously impressive faith, by especially by the end of his life. Yeah. But the fact that God lifts him up as kind of like the, the 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 model of what it looks like as a as a man in a broken world to have faith, and you look at his life and you're like, holy cow, <laughs> there's hope for me, you know? Yeah, because not his to, stumbles are big stumbles. Yeah, not to look at all of us as humans and just this microscopic like decision by decision, mm-hmm. but we have a lifetime that we've been given. Yeah, complex, and yet he's redeemed. Yeah. Very complex, highs and lows. He's all over the place, and yet God is faithful, as we said a million times during the last several episodes. So today, like I said, we get into Abraham's final chapter, chapter 25, and so let's just start right at the beginning, because here's something that people don't know. Like if I were to ask you, name Abraham's sons, you would immediately, like I would, you'd say, oh, Isaac, and? I don't know. Well, come on. Who's my next one? Isaac and? I don't know. Ishmael. Oh, Ishmael. I forgot about him. I may have to edit that out. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Actually, now I might leave it out. I this forgot about... I didn't count him because he's not Sarah's kid. That's true. Well, God I was says, a purist. God says, your only son in Genesis 22. So you're just you're thank siding you. with God. I'm just biblical. <laughs> so after that point... It says, Abraham took another wife. Remember, in Genesis 23, Sarah died. He goes on the search for where to bury her because he's looking forward to the resurrection. You remember that chapter? So now he's looking for another wife. And this is shocking, though, because we just talked about Abraham's about to die in the first verse. is like, he has another wife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's old, old. Like, that's yeah. door. Well, I will tell congratulations on this note. I will announce, like, my dad, you know, my mom. Uh, she passed away in July. My dad just got engaged to his new wife, Gloria, who is a wonderful, wonderful person who loves the Lord with all of her heart, used to do prison ministry. And when when I'm talking with people, they say, you know, the older you get, the shorter the grieving gets. Yeah, you got to make it happen if you're going to move on. <laughs> so so he's creeping up on 80. It's like, yeah, let's let's just cut the dating part short. And so they get along. He's happier than I've seen him in a long time. Uh, so really, congratulations! And so Abraham, he's up in years. There's no, there's no need to mess around here. Let's just get right down to it. But here's, here's even probably the crazier part. It says he takes another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him. And you're like, whoa, hold on a minute! Like it was miraculous when he was a hundred and he's having kids. Well, now he's beyond a hundred. No one talks about these miracles coming from. Yeah, this is. <laughs> we don't know how old Keturah is. 
But she bore him not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six kids. She bore him Zimron, Jakshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So he's got six kids coming post 100. Like I'm in my 40s and I'm worn out. <laughs> so I can't imagine what it's like, like with toddlers running around and he's got help, I think. He's, he's got to have some good yeah. nannies on call or something. Abraham, now now here's where it gets important. Cause so you got all these new kids that come around. Remember what happened with, with Isaac and Ishmael? You reach a point where like the promised land has been given to Abraham and then to Isaac, and it's going to be given to Isaac's son of promise. And so what happened with Isaac and Ishmael is Ishmael gets sent away because the promise belongs to Isaac. Well, now you have Abraham who has these six kids, and it happens again. So listen to this. So they, they grow up. They become the age of adulthood, and it says Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Ouch. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And so all of these different sons are going to be given large gifts to start out, and they're sent out to the east and to the southern regions where they're going to kind of found and become the leaders of different tribes. So the Midianites, for example, come from one of the sons of Keturah, and they settle down in the region of Arabia, and you're going you're gonna to hear more about the Midianites to come. So you got to think, like, he's got pretty incredible stock. You know, when it says nations are going to come forth from Abraham, it's not just talking about Israel. Through You're going to have Esau with the Edomites, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites. you got all these different tribes that are coming through them. And you're going to see later on this passage, Ishmael's going to have 12 different princes that come from him with territories that are established all over. So when you're looking at the ancient world, here is a man whose sons are kings and princes, and they just settle this whole region, which before this is tribal, nomadic in some sense, but they start to bring shape to actual nations and territories of people. And Abraham had that much wealth where just the gifts that they were given, they yeah. didn't have to wander around anymore, that they could set down roots and actually build a civilization around that That's kind right. of gift. That's wild, isn't it? Like, here, go go found a kingdom. And they're not, <laughs> you know? and they're not mad about it. They're like, okay. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's like God. This is God's blessing upon Abraham. It's not like, oh, here's the leftover sons. You know, y'all go away. No, they're going off to found very successful people groups and mm-hmm. kingdoms in these different regions. Um. Pretty, pretty phenomenal. And by the way, every you got to be thinking, if you're one of the sons, and this, this occurred to me when I was recently writing about Joseph and, and Judah and the 12 sons of Jacob, by the time you get to them, every time there's a son of promise, the other son ends up getting sent away. So you have, you know, Abraham has in total eight kids that we know of, Isaac, Ishmael, then these six. Isaac stays, the other seven. <laughs> get out. Yeah, they're going somewhere. Then we're going to see you have Isaac, who has two kids. You have Jacob and Esau, and Esau's going to found the Edomites, and they're outside the promised land. So when you get to, to Jacob's 12 sons, you got to be thinking, like, this might be why they were so jealous of Joseph. Like, our father and grandfather had one son 
that was shown the favor and the covenant of God, everyone else got sent away. And it's clear that Joseph is getting some favoritism by by the time you get to there. Everybody else is waiting for the get out, yeah. you know, go somewhere like else, the door. Found, found some other kingdom. But that's really the pattern that you see up until this point. That's not going to happen to Jacob's sons, but it wouldn't have been wrong for them to expect it. That's kind of been the pattern here. So verse 7 These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. And so we're still in that brief window after the narrative of the flood where the average age expectancy begins to drop precipitously. Like people go from living wild numbers of years earlier, and it's going to come down rapidly to where I think Joseph lives 110 years. And beyond that, like you don't find crazy long life. Moses lives 120 after that. It comes down to two-digit kind of lifespan. So it says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons. So I want you to notice there that when Abraham dies, Ishmael comes home, which means what? They still have a relationship. They still have a relationship. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And in your mind, when you hear that story, you think, get out, you know, you're forsaken, you're no longer, no, Ishmael comes home to honor his dad when his dad's being buried. So it's not just like, you mean nothing to me anymore, get out. Yeah, because Ishmael's response isn't hatred towards his father. No. It's one that comes comes back to to grief. That's right. Hmm. That's right. Which, you know, I'd never thought about before, but that's really the reality here. So they come back and they bury him in the cave of Machpelah. So... If you're Ishmael, what does what does that mean? It, Ishmael's recognizing that your genuine wife is Sarah. It's not Hagar, which is Ishmael's Ishmael's mom. It's 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 Sarah. So they bury him in the very same cave where Abraham had buried Sarah, looking forward to the resurrection. It says in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. No no breaking up that passage. It's just like, we got to keep <laughs> going. Yeah. All right, so now we get to the bunch of names, and Will's going to read these for us. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These wait, are wait, the, wait. I kind of want you to go back, read them faster. Okay. Just as fast as you can go. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael named in the order of their birth. Nebeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. It's actually easier that way. I was going to say. I you kind of got rhythmically. <laughs> that was better than I expected. I was hoping to, to lay a trap for you. Because I wasn't thinking about what would this sound like in Hebrew. <laughs> nice. All right. Verse 16. Know. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I just wanted, I, I, whenever I get into a list of names like that, I immediately just feel dumb because <laughs> I know I'm butchering these names. Yeah, because when, like, if I was reading this by myself, I would just 
Yeah, you just look at him. I would just look at him. Yeah. I wouldn't even try to pronounce him in my head. I'd be yeah. like, all right. There he is. So verse 16 says, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And we lost Ishmael right there. So there you go. Now Ishmael has passed away. And basically what it's telling you is he had 12 sons, which makes you think like there's a, there's a divine pattern there that when God blesses somebody and wants kingdom to come out of them, you know, you're going to see Ishmael who has 12. Then you're going to find Jacob who God fathers the nation of it. He becomes Israel and he will have 12 sons. And that's kind of the, the idea. 12 is a special, and you have Jesus with the 12 apostles. Like this becomes, like when God is founding a new kingdom, 12 is a big deal. Patterns. Yeah. Yeah, you see the pattern there. And so Ishmael is going to, it says that he's settling from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. So that's kind of confusing. So it's say go down to Egypt and now come up toward Assyria, it's telling you that he's in Arabia, which is kind of desert. Remember the prophecy that he would be a wild ass of a man, uh, which is an actual species of donkey that's very territorial that lives all by itself out in the wilderness? Well, that place is wilderness. Hmm. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's nobody else out there, and that's, that's absolutely um, the kind of territory that he's going to have there. And it says he settled over against all his kinsmen, which means what? He's fighting against his brothers. That was the precise prophecy. Getting after it. That's the, that's the prophecy that God gave to Hagar, that his hand would be against his brothers. And here you see kind of a summary, a eulogy of his life. And it's like, yep, he, that was, that's who he was. It's kind of nice to get some closure on all these characters. I yeah. never had closure with Ishmael. Yeah. We always just kick him out. And we're like, yeah, that's the end of his yeah. life. Yeah, he's done. We forget about we that like guy. Him. Yeah, yeah so this is good. Throw him away. This is full circle for all of us. Yeah, and he's had closure with his dad, which is kind of a, like, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I don't know why it makes me feel yeah. better. It but does. The, but the You're fact right. that I feel Ishmael better today shows up at dad's funeral shows me, okay, there's, there's it's not like long-lasting bitter blood. He loved his dad. And it seems like he had a good life. Yeah. Oh, Some got, good settlement. Yeah, he did what he's called to do. I'll tell you this: if if I if I have twelve sons, like I don't know that that would be a good life. <laughs> but but <laughs> I got three sons and a daughter, and I'm like this my hair's enough. already too yeah. gray and white. But if I had twelve sons and they all became princes and were like called princes and territories and you know, like in terms of how the world looks at a life. Man, he produced some sons that were wildly influential and successful. Now, covenantally, maybe not, but in yeah. terms of the world, they're Even, super successful. If you have fifty, if I have however many kids I have, I only have one now, so this is all. If I have fifty percent of them turn out to be like real great functioning citizens, I'll be jazzed. <laughs> no, you, you know, won't. parenting's hard. That when you kids have are difficult. Kids, you, you obviously won't you want them at all 50%. to be. We're not going to sacrifice them, but you'd be like. <laughs> Yeah, hey, we'll get this rid is of that tough. One. We're not yeah. getting rid of any of them, but you know they all don't shape out. Yeah, so the fact that he was twelve for twelve with princes ruling and reigning, yeah, good dad. I tell you what, man, he he raised them to to figure out how to do it. So then it, we totally shift gears, and what's crazy about this is it's like okay, so there's there's Abraham, and we close the chapter on Abraham, and there's Ishmael, and we close the chapter on Ishmael, and like I said before, like. 
So you have four generations of patriarchs that are in Genesis, which is kind of weird. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but if I ask the ordinary person on the street to tell me what Genesis is about, all, I mean, most people are biblically illiterate, but most of them would say, well, it's about creation. And it just gives, you know, one chapter to the creation of the universe. It gives another chapter to, you know, the Garden of Eden, then the fall, one chapter. You get four chapters or so on the flood. You get two chapters of Nimrod and Babel. But the rest of this book, which is 50 chapters long, so from chapter 12 to chapter 50, is about four generations of one family, which shows you where God puts his priority. If he wanted us to know a lot about creation, he'd have given it more than one chapter. Just a little more detail even. Yeah, right? Like just... Yeah. Which I would want, like, but this is showing you God spends, no, 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 from 12 to 50, that many chapters talking about his covenant with one family, mm-hmm. which means what does God find important? His covenant. His covenant. His love, his generational love for his people, he gives, of one family, he gives way more ink to than all of creation by by a lot, by a lot, a lot. And so, but what, what's weird here is you go from Abraham and it's going to kind of skip over Isaac. Isaac doesn't get anywhere near as much ink as the other patriarchs for whatever reason. And so then it, it's going to tell you like, we haven't even heard much about Isaac's marriage. We haven't found out much about Isaac other than, you know, he was going to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. We know that he waited for his bride to be found by Abraham's servant. We talked about that. But now we get into Isaac, and it's like, okay, well, let me tell you about Isaac's, the birth of his sons. And it's like, <laughs> we're just skipping right to Jacob and Esau, and then we come back to Isaac next week. So here we go. It says in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So now that sounds very familiar. Isaac takes a wife, and she's barren. What's that remind us of? Abraham and Sarah. He did it with Abraham, too. And what was the message that God was trying to beat into Abraham's head? Trust him. Trust him for he's the God who always has life triumph over death. And so right out of the gates, it's like, hey, Isaac, you remember Mount Moriah, you know, you where should. I showed up. Yeah, that was, you should remember that. Kind of traumatic. <laughs> but now I want to show you that I'm the God that can bring life from barrenness. And it says, like, this is, it races through it so much where it gives so much more drama to the story of Abraham and Sarah. But it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and she conceived. And it makes it sound like, you know, one day she comes home and she says, hey, Isaac, yeah, I'm unable to have kids. And he goes, oh, hold on a minute. Yeah, shoots up a prayer. He shoots up a prayer and all of a sudden she's pregnant. But the reality is when you read later, you find out that these kids that are going to be born aren't born until he's 60 years old. So that's in verse 26 down a ways, which means he's married at 40. Yeah, that's helpful. He has kids at 60, which means how long has he been praying? 20 years. 20 years years this is no small thing for isaac okay Remember? that's good because that made me feel like this timetable is way shorter than abraham I'm like oh god just let it all happen way quicker than yeah. last time and that's great but that's what i mean like yeah. with abraham it's like painstaking i mean mm-hmm. you're going through chapters where it's like they've given up on the promise you see their doubts you see their struggles 
But with Isaac, you don't you don't see that. They you know they're not negotiating. Hey, maybe we, you should take my concubine. None of that comes into the picture. You just hear he prayed and God answered his prayer. But that's a twenty year mm. wait for the Lord to the, to answer your prayer. Um, but this is just who Isaac is. Like he's a pretty faithful guy. And I you know I think there he the the scriptures don't add any drama because Isaac didn't give any drama. And the drama's coming. It, uh, the drama is coming, but it's not sourced by yeah. Isaac being a, a goofball here. <laughs> so Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Remember, 20 years there. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So now what's interesting about this, Rebecca, we already know, is beautiful, we know that she's generous because of what she offers. Oh, let me water your camels. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Like she's incredibly merciful and hospitable. Like she's beautiful inside and out. And here, when she comes across problems in her pregnancy, what's her first response? To go to the Lord. Prayer. Yeah. So you got Isaac who's praying to the Lord. And, and when you think about it, every time that Abraham needed to be redirected, it's God coming to Abraham. You ever yeah, notice that? That is true. Yeah, God intervened. Yeah, God's got to come to Abraham and be like, hey, keep your eyes on the ball yeah, here. Focus. You know, <laughs> you know, I know I see you going off course. Trust me, I'm going to make good on my promise. But with Isaac, you see a shift. It's Isaac who goes to the Lord and prays on behalf of his wife. When, when Rebecca's having a problem, it's not Sarah who's in the tent kind of laughing at God when he comes to her. No, Re- Rebecca now trusts the Lord enough that she goes to inquire of the Lord, and then God speaks to her. So it's they're just a faithful couple. Like, I really like them. I wish they had more of a story in Scripture, honestly. Uh, and it says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And that's <laughs> that's just wild to stop and think about, you know, when when Morgan was pregnant, you think of a baby. Yeah. You know, which is baptism coming up on Sunday. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's really cool. But we think of a baby. When Laura's pregnant, I think of a baby. God looks in there and sees all of that baby and all of that baby's children and all of that baby's mm. children and all of that yeah, baby's children. Yeah, the whole children. picture. So every person who's ever lived that's a descendant of Edom or Esau, which become the Edomites, and every person who ever lived that comes from Jacob, which is every Jewish or Hebrew Israelite person you've ever known throughout all of history, when the Lord looks, it says two nations are in your womb. He sees millions of people in that moment. Like, that's pretty wild. <laughs> two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Oof. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And that again is crazy. (laughs) Like if you go into the ancient world, there was something called primogeniture. And what that means, that's just a fancy word that says the firstborn son gets the inheritance. They have the authority over the home. Once the dad's out of the picture, they're the ones that stand to inherit the blessing, the birthright, all of that stuff. Right. And the scriptures come along and God is saying, okay, You're going to have two kids. It's going to be the second born, even though they're twins. It's going to be the second born, not the first born, who gets all the blessing. And the older one is going to serve the younger. Mm. And so God comes and says, hey, I'm a God of the underdogs. Mm. I'm not buying into the world's way of doing it. 
primogeniture, you know, the person who, who seems to be entitled to the blessing, I work differently. In fact, my blessing goes to the one that's usually the underdog. And that's something that you see in scripture again and again and again. So it's, I mean, go back and it's, it's not Cain, the firstborn son of Adam. It's going to be Seth that will carry the promise. It's not, I, it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. It's not Reuben, it's Judah. It's not Zerah, it's Perez. It's, Elimin, it's not Elimelech, it's Boaz. It's not Eliab, it's David. It's not Amnon, it's Solomon. Like you go through all of these people in the course of, of the tree of salvation and God is repeatedly passing up the firstborn. And so for all of my firstborns out there, like that's not that's not something that continues now. You're not cursed or anything. <laughs> I'm but, bringing this up to my parents. There you go. Oh Alex, guys, let's you talk about this. <laughs> so, but what that is saying is we serve a God who is very much a God of the underdogs. Yeah. He does not operate according to the world's principles. And so now he's coming to Rebecca and saying to Rebecca, it's not going to be your firstborn who is the blessed one, who's entitled to the inheritance and the birthright and all that stuff. It is going to be your younger son. And so that is already set up out of the gates. This, their whole relationship, by the way, going forward, is going to be a war over blessing. And that changes Rebecca's parenting style, as we'll see. Yes, it does. Like, she listens to this, <laughs> yeah. which she probably didn't want to hear. That's not what you want to hear as a mother with twins in your womb, but she mm-hmm. does take this and act accordingly, I would She say. believes it. And it makes you wonder, because Isaac, you know, as faithful as he is, as much as he prays, as much as he's you know obeys, we'll see in the next chapter, Isaac seems really resistant to this. Like, Do you think she didn't tell him? I guess this is all speculation, folks, so don't take any of this... I don't, we're left to wonder, like, did they get in a fight of it? And Isaac's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe, I don't believe God came to you because Isaac very much wants Esau yeah. to be the guy and Jake, he's not going to be the guy. Jacob's going to be the guy. And so you wonder, does Rebecca go to him and say, oh, Jacob is my second born son. God has announced his favor on him. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, very much like Abraham kind of doesn't want Isaac. You remember how he's like, oh, just let Ishmael. I love this boy. You know, let him be the one who inherits the blessing. You have the man who's backing the wrong horse. The dad is backing the wrong horse in both of these situations where the the, the wife, Sarah, of course, wants Isaac mm-hmm. or the prospect of Isaac. And you have Rebecca who's backing Jacob. Mm. And it's just interesting how this plays out. And in a culture of patriarchal, you know, the dad gets what he wants. That makes it even more crazy. No, God gets what he wants. Mm. (laughs) You know, it's like he's overruling even the patriarchal culture of the day. So it says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. And so what's fascinating is like, I always imagine ancient people of this region and almost inevitably, they have darker or olive-colored skin in my imagination. They all have black hair, like jet black hair. Yeah. Um, but here you have Esau who comes out, and he's red, and he's red-headed. And it's like an Irishman, you know, in the, in the line of, of Isaac here. And it's like, where does this genetic tree come from? Um, 
but even in Egyptian art, when they would when they would draw pictures of Canaanites, you know, a lot of them would come out with red hair in their paintings. Huh. Um, if you go into the Cairo Museum, there's people in the Egyptian royal family that are redheads because when they're when you take out the mummy and you know their their skin is all wrapped up, but when they've taken off the bandages and you can look at the old pharaohs, you know, dead sitting there in glass cases, the hair is still there. And some of them are blonde, some of them are redheaded, and you're like, this is not how I picture yeah. Egyptians, because what we want to do is take modern-day Egyptians and kind of transpose it back, you know, 4,000 years and say they they looked the same back then. But they had, like, a crazy diversity of genetics, because you do have, most of them are jet black hair, <laughs> you know, but then there's this weird variations that you see all over the place, and, and in this instance, Esau is a redhead. So he comes out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. That's a description. <laughs> Beautiful little baby boy. Yeah. Hairy like a cloak. Do you know anybody who's hairy like a cloak? I feel like that's as you age that happens. <laughs> Actually, isn't it interesting that babies sometimes come out with a lot of hair and then they lose it? Like on their bodies. Yeah. yeah. And they lose it and then as yeah. you get old and you're declining, becoming more like a baby. Anybody who hasn't that seen that too. is going, what are they talking about? Yeah. I've never seen such a baby. <laughs> It's wild. Yeah. My, so I was kind of nervous about that with Everett. So not we, that I would not love her, but that would, <laughs> I think that would have freaked me out a little bit in the delivery room. Like, whoa. Okay. You'd be breaking out the bit trying yeah. to shave her. Like, what is going on? So when Caleb was born, he, he like lost his hair just on the crown of his head. I, there's a condition for it. I forget what it's called. But he kept the hair on the side of his head, and he looked like George Costanza for a while. That's like, awesome. He looked like a middle-aged man about to like go into retirement or have a midlife crisis as a baby. Just crushing it. <laughs> it was pretty cute. So anyway, so Esau comes out. He's red. His, he's hairy. had like a cloak. By the way, uh, Esau, because he's red, he's also called Edom, and that's because that word means red. And so his descendants are called the Edomites, which means... They carried on that trait, presumably, where they came out red, like Irish looking, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have kept that name if all of a sudden there was no redheads yeah, anymore. Yeah, right. Like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. So it says, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Then it's where it says, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And so this is a really, really significant thing that's coming out here. So the battle that you will see emerge between Esau and Jacob is going to be one that is really confusing and it can be really troubling for us because like Esau becomes the favorite of the father. We're going to see that later on. Jacob becomes the favorite of the mother, which is really bad parenting, by the way. You shouldn't have You shouldn't favorites. do that? <laughs> yeah. I like, well... I like this son so much better than you. And this one almost seems like they almost raised them separately. Yeah. Like it? Esau's only collaborations with his father and Jacob's yeah. only collaborations with his mom. So because Isaac likes, you know, outdoorsy stuff and Esau, and we, we've, we hear in the next passage, he's a skillful hunter, skillful hunter. And by the way, like this is not good. You know, there's not a lot of good hunters in the Bible. When usually when you find someone who's described as a hunter, like Nimrod, is a mighty hunter before the Lord. Bad guy. Yeah, really bad. He sets up the world's first kingdom against God. Here you have Esau, which is the only person that specifies that God hated in all the scripture. It's this guy. He's yeah. a hunter. So there, there's not a whole, and by the way, I like hunters. My family has hunters in it. 
We're we're good. <laughs> this is an anti-hunting podcast. Yeah, this actually. is not an Welcome. anti. I'm very I'm very pro hunter, but Esau not not so good. He's a man of the field, and Isaac loves him. While Jacob is a quiet man, which is like he's a man of learning. He dwells in tents. He's he's not the one who's out hunting animals and game. And then it just flat out says Isaac loved Esau because he ate the game, but Rebecca loved Jacob, and it almost makes it sound like to the exclusion of the other. Yeah, you know? it's hard not to read that into it. Well, how would you not? Or, or I guess you could say Isaac really loved Esau, but Jacob less so, and Rebecca really loved Jacob, but less so Esau. I don't know. Yeah, it's not like the classic parenting, like, I love you both the same, but I like you differently right now. Mm-hmm. When you have the same like kind of language is used when Jacob takes wives, and it says he loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. There, The word hate in Hebrew, but it has a connotation. So let me, I wrote about this. So let me, let me, let me go and look at my notes. Yeah. Let's just not talk about this off the top of our head. (laughs) So the, the Hebrew word for hate, it comes from two Hebrew letters. Uh, One of them is Samek and one of them is Nun. And if you go back to the very earliest forms of Hebrew, they're pictographs. You know what I mean by that? Like the letters look like things. So for instance, Samek is one of the letters. The word is Sane for hate. And it's Samek is a thorn and Nun is seed. And so the word for hatred is combined of those two pictures. The hatred is a thorn and seed. Well, what is thorn in scripture? It's a curse. It's the curse, right? And what is seed in scripture? The promise. It's the promise. And so what you have here is hatred. The word hatred in Hebrew is literally made up of two ideas. It is anything that brings a curse to the future seed, Mm. right? And so that, like, when God says that, you know, he hates Esau, it's like you bring a curse to the future. It's it's almost like that's the idea. You make the future a worse place, and so there's a, a hatred where God's covenantal love toward Jacob is like you're bringing life to future seed. Esau, you're bringing death to future seed. At least that's my own pet theory. Right now, any theologian listening to me is going, oh, what is he talking about? But but they really did that with Hebrew, with pictographs and, and early Hebrew. When it presents these two characters to you, now I'm going to say something that is, this is a Sam original, so brace yourselves, take it. I'm met. no part of this. I have no idea what he's about to say. <laughs> take it for what it's worth. Esau is going to grow up. He's going to be his father's favorite. And you get the sense that he, he's not a really terrible guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do anything where you're like, oh, my gosh, like, he needs to go to jail. He's yeah. such a terrible person. He does one thing, though, that's really terrible, and that's this. He hates God and his promises. And you get the sense of that early on in the story. But he he doesn't do a whole lot of terrible things. Whereas you look at or you look at Jacob, and Jacob we're gonna see as we go through the rest of the patriarch story. Jacob at every turn becomes more and more unlikable. It seems like he is constantly scheming. He is constantly advantaging himself by really taking it to someone else or or conniving and scheming them out of what they should get. That's just who Jacob is. And you think like if you were to put those two characters based on human standards, which one of these would you rather be your roommate? Esau. You know, well, if it's Jacob, I, I got to watch. I got to lock everything up. Yeah. Like he's just not trustworthy. He's, he's always scheming. 
Esau, you know, he doesn't like God, but he doesn't he doesn't do anything terrible. Mm. And the story is setting you up to really challenge, I think, God and his sovereignty is challenging your understanding of why do you why should you have God's favor upon your life? Because when you read the story, you're you're tempted to want to say, no, 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 no. Jacob should not get the blessing. Jacob should not get the favor because he's a scoundrel. He's terrible. Look at all the stuff he does, and we're going to get into that. It should go to Esau, but there's one major difference between the two that has all the difference in how God sees them, and it's how do they respond to the promise. Mm. Jacob, as messy as he is, will do anything to get the blessing. He will do anything to lay his hands on the covenantal promise of God, even though he's a mess in the process. And he gets redeemed at the end of his life, by the way. We'll get there too. But he's a mess through most of it. But man, he will do anything to grab hold of the promises of God. And God looks at that despite all of his flaws and goes, I love that guy. Mm. Esau, on the other hand, doesn't do anything that's notoriously evil that you see coming from Jacob but he would spit in the face of God as opposed to wanting anything to do with the promise, and God does not like him. And so right out of the gates, and we'll come back to that, but right out of the gates, I want you to listen to how it describes Jacob. So they're in the womb, and and by the way, when it tells you the story that you know Esau is born and Jacob's hand is clutching hold of Esau's heel— the idea behind that is not like, the Bible's not expecting you to believe that babies in utero are going, I'm going to get you, you know, like we're, it, the Bible's not stupid, but babies do have an involuntary clutching response, an instinct in their a reflex in their hands to where if you take a marker or a pen or a finger and you put it in a baby's palm they clamp on it like they're going to grip it. That's the idea. So Esau's, and it's a strong grip. It can lift up like twice their weight or something. I think I once read. So Esau's being born. Jacob's hand hits Esau's heel and clutches the heel. And when they're born, that's what's taking place. That's what they see. And everybody sees that as a sign. That's an omen. Why? Why is that a bad omen? So it's like, you know, the they're, they're taking it as a sign that, like Esau, that Jacob is trying to overtake Esau. They see it as a sign, not like they're scheming, but as a sign. When's the last time in Scripture you've heard about something clutching someone else's heel? We're going all the way back to Genesis yeah. 3.15. 3.15, and what's that? What does it say? That the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake, but the snake is going to do what? Bruise its heel. Bruise its heel. Strike its heel is the idea. And so this is the first living being since Genesis 3 that you have striking out and grabbing hold of a heel. And he comes out, and what do they name him? Jacob. You know what that means? Deceiver? Deceiver. Supplanter. Mm. So like out of the gates, Jacob is taking on all of these titles of things that are related to the enemy. Like, this is not a good thing to be called a heel grabber. Like, literally what that means is, like, you grab someone's heel to trip them up, right? You're, you're yeah. going to make them stumble. It's the identity of what Satan does. And he's named literally means supplanter. It literally means heel grabber, but it's deceiver. It's someone who's trying to trick you out of something. So everything about his identity out of the gates is in accordance with who the greatest enemy of Scripture is, which is 
the greater deceiver, the one who strikes the heel. Why in the world does God want you to correlate Jacob, the one who gets the promise, with one of the greatest identities of wickedness in all of the Scripture? I don't know. It's because he wants to drive the gospel into your mm. brain. Do you know why Jacob is favored? Because, because of what he's done, just because what he believes, what he trusts, that's what it. he hopes in. That's it. It's not because Jacob earned it. I mean, if there ever was a character in all of Scripture <laughs> that you could say, this dude did not deserve I mean, he has the whole nation called after him. This is Israel, yeah, it's, right? The God of Jacob. And how many times does Scripture use those kinds of terms? And it's like, wait a minute. God wants to be associated with this guy? Like, Yeah, he gets an odd amount of accolades for his actual responsibility and decision-making ability. But think about it. It's, it's not because Jacob lived a great moral life. He can't, like, if you're looking at the resume, nope. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't measure up. But I'll tell you what Jacob had in abundance— and that is a zeal for the promise. Hmm. He wanted the blessing more than anything. And so now I want you to take a step back and go, okay, here's my, here's my moral resume and all the things that I do and how good I am and how amazing I am. No, God is going to take a character who is uh, like flawed. Even his identity is the heel, heel grabber. It's the deceiver. It's all of this terrible, terrible things to name your kid. Like, my son's name is Jacob, by the way. Yeah, I do have questions about how you name your kids. <laughs> I got stories about how I name my kids. But God wants you to see, good grief, it's not about your moral track record. Huh. It is about your zeal for the promise. That's what makes him the God of Jacob as opposed to the God of Esau. Yeah, and this early on, that was his track yeah like from birth that was what god was ordaining for him like yeah it's prophetic. you're gonna be called the deceiver you're gonna be grasping at heels but in the end it's gonna come through you mm -hmm. he and he lives up to those names <laughs> you know he he's quite a mess there's times where when i was writing my chapter on jacob i was like i don't like this guy like i i wouldn't want i don't i wouldn't want to be friends then with you him. looked at your son you're a man <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyway i have four kids and uh, so we named our first three before I took Hebrew. Um, and our first one we named Caleb. And the funny story about that. He's a good character, though. Caleb's a great, great character. character. Amazing he started character. off strong, I feel like. Yeah, so he's like, there's no real bad thing about Caleb. We know that at the age of 80, he's fighting battles and fighting for the Lord. And he remained faithful to the Lord all the days of his life. Like, he's a great character. When Laura and I first got married, we were like, before we start having kids, because I was terrified of having kids, huh. um, I, I knew I was not ready to be a dad, which, by the way, you're never ready to be a dad. No. God prepares you. It's tough. You, you just, you're, you're never going to be like, okay, now I'm ready to be responsible for another eternal soul. So anyway, <laughs> um, so we had, we'd actually joked that we wanted to have a dog before we had a baby to like... Start yeah. learning some oh, sense like of responsibility. you're like a millennial, you know? <laughs> well, anyway, we found out later that that didn't work. So we, <laughs> she was pregnant within five months after getting married, and it didn't work. Okay. Um, and Caleb, his name means dog. Then huh. we had Jacob and found out later that his name means deceiver, and it was like, oh, man, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's on us. We had Leah, whose name means exhausted, so it's like all of these names that we're choosing from, he we got a dog, we got a deceiver, and we've got exhausted. And then we took Hebrew. And so our final child, we gave Nathan, which means gift, or he gives. And so that one was a good one. But we, we got dog, deceiver, 
exhausted. <sighs> and now they'll walk with that for the rest of their lives. <laughs> That's right. So, so anyway, all that to say, like when it's describing the beginnings of these two, you get the sense that Jacob is not going to deserve to be the son of promise. Yeah, you don't even want him to have it right now in the story. Yeah. Like if, you, if you're just reading this, know nothing else about Jacob, you're like, I don't like this one. Mm-hmm. This other one seems fine. Like yep. Esau hasn't done anything like he said. So it is, and again, book of Genesis is coming to us and just throwing everything upside down. Yeah, you can't get through the book of Genesis and think God gives his favor based on people being moral champions. Yeah. No. It's impossible. Like, it is his faithfulness to people who grab hold by faith of a promise, even though they stumble all over the place in the meantime. And, like and that's a time. comfort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a comfort because that's us. So anyway, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, which is that's kind of a shallow reason to love your son. I respect that. <laughs> He's, bring me the fatty portion. Yeah. Give me the big piece of chicken. But Rebecca loved Jacob. And it says once when, and here's, here's the crux of, what's going on with Esau's heart is in this story it says once when Jacob was cooking stew. So Jacob's at home in the tents with his mom, Esau's out hunting and he comes in from the field and he was totally exhausted. So we don't know, you know, was he running out of water? Did he, did he, the trip take longer? Is it super hot out? You know, he comes in, he's got the game. He's, he's totally exhausted. And it says Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Everything about Esau's coming back to this color red. And it says, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, and this is where this chapter ends, thus Esau despised his birthright. And so this is the prime example of the difference. Jacob will scheme and do whatever he can to get the birthright and the blessing. Esau looks at the promise of God. And so like, I want you to imagine this. Imagine the same God that comes to Abraham and says, hey, through you, All the descendants on earth, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. Through you, the salvation of the world is going to come. Through you, and think through God's perspective, I'm going to bring about my son, God, who becomes flesh, who comes into the world, who has to suffer for all of your wickedness, goes to a cross, dies, is put into a grave, humiliated utterly, but he's going to conquer death and give that as a gift to everyone who will cling to him, everyone who by faith will trust in him, and I will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so in God's mind, you have this tremendously costly, amazing, beautiful promise, covenant. And Esau looks at it and says, I would trade it, and the literal Hebrew here is, I would trade it for a swallow of that red stuff. Think about, I mean, I'm really stop and think about, now imagine Esau at the foot of the cross looking up at Jesus and all of the, the substance behind this covenant, all the substance behind this promise, looking up at the suffering of God on a cross and saying, I'd trade it all for a swallow of some red stuff. Like Esau had absolutely no value to this covenant that God prized above everything else. 
Jacob was a total train wreck, but Jacob loved that promise. And here you see the difference. And this is going to be one of the defining marks that you find throughout the rest of Scripture is the people of the kingdom of God are willing to fast. They're willing to, to, to go without for a season in order to gain that which is down the road eternally, where all of the people of the kingdom of this world that are, that are not part of the, they're always about their stomach. They're always about their appetite. Where can I, where can I meet this appetite for the next moment? Just give me a swallow, you know, and that they live for the next moment's relief, the next moment's pleasure, as opposed to what is eternally minded. And that's the difference between those that are saved in some sense and those that are not. That helps make the story make a lot more sense. Because even as you led up to it, I'm like, it doesn't sound that bad. It, it, like on, it is. It is, yeah. But when you actually explain, like, okay, this is what the birthright is. This is what it managed. This is what he said. This is what he did. Now you understand the full context. Because at first, it all seems a little harsh. Mm-hmm. It seems like Esau gets a really bad deal. Yeah. Jacob's a deceiver. Tricked him into it. This poor guy's just exhausted. Just looking for a little bite to eat. Mm-hmm. But that makes more sense. Well, that's that's. I mean, when I had to sit down and think through this, the reason, like, it's because what your your first read of it is, no, God, yes, like, come wrong. on, this this feels petty. Like, love him, you know, he's okay, he's not that bad. But when you say that, what you're saying is, like, you know, yeah, your covenant's really not all that important, you know. But the same thing happens again. Do you remember when when the Israelites are freed from Egypt and they go out into the wilderness? and all of the people grumble against Moses. Here's God who's given them salvation from the land of death and, and slavery, and they're out in the wilderness free. And what are they saying? We wish we could go back to Egypt where we were surrounded with pots of meat. Same thing. And die there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're fine with the slavery. We're fine being under the, the crown of the serpent king. We're fine being back there, but you know, this whole thing about being with God... Without pots of meat, why do we want this? We were better off to just die in Egypt. like. And God's like, golly, man. And they're, when he gives them manna from heaven, which, by the way, like flavored with honey and all this kind of, like God is extravagantly generous to the Israelites because they're too cowardly to go take the promised land. So out in the desert, he's giving them food. And what do they say? We detest this miserable food. Like, at every turn, he is showing just an abundance of grace and mercy and trying to usher them in to a covenant with them. And his people are like, I'd rather have my pot of meat. I'd rather have you know cucumbers and all these things that they list and wanting to walk away from God. But maybe one of the one of the passages that's the most on the nose, because you know, the people of God are keeping their eyes fixed on the city of God. They're keeping their eyes fixed on heaven where where the people who are not belonging to Christ are always just thinking about the next moment's satisfaction. I need the next deal. I need the next high. I need the next experience. Like anything that might satisfy me for a moment's pleasure, I'll take that as opposed to something that can satisfy me forever. Yeah. Um, but listen to what Paul says. When you get to Philippians chapter 3, listen, listen to what he says because this is the difference between Jacob and the patriarchs and Esau. Philippians chapter 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
Then he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God, listen to what he says, their God is their belly. In other words, they will try to fill it up and it will just keep, they'll keep being hungry. It'll never satisfy. It's a slavery. And yet they serve it. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shames. Their minds are set on earthly things. And then he transitions in verse 20 and says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so here you have the two pictures. Mm. The enemies of the cross, their God is their stomach. What does that mean? They're repetitive. Yeah. They jump from one thing to the next to try to find some semblance of satisfaction in this world, and everything always leaves them empty. That's Esau. Mm. You know, I'll trade something that's everlastingly significant, important, and valuable for something that just a swallow of it. Just get me a moment's pleasure and I'll forsake everything eternal. And that's, I mean, when people walk away from the Lord or when they resist the Lord, usually it's because they don't want to open their hand and give up something that's really petty that can bring them a moment's pleasure here and there and trade it for a life that's submitted to the God of the universe who can satisfy them forever. Hmm. We still have a lot of Esau's running around yeah. who will trade God for a swallow. It just makes more sense than I thought it did. Because <laughs> we don't always give a good argument for this. This is one of those passages, even as a kid, that you're just like, I don't really know, but this is what happened. <laughs> and this is the outcome, and this is, we don't know why. <laughs> just trust it. Because there's some harsh language about Esau that she's like, mm -hmm. very much so. I mean, you hated him, God? That's the most uncomfortable. I think probably the most uncomfortable passages in Scripture deal with God looking at one particular human soul and feeling that hatred. Or what, you know, the, the Hebrew connotations even, that your your existence is a curse upon the seed. You know, you're, you bring destruction. Everything about you is just gross to me. And the Edomites, like, they don't do a lot of good things. Um, they're they're kind of, like, a lot of them will become a curse on the world. Herod, King Herod, is an Edomite. I think he's the only famous Edomite I can pull up in my memory. Yeah, um, I mean, he did Not a good character. Real bad, yeah. You know? And I'm sure, I wouldn't be surprised at all to know that God redeemed some of them, but... Esau, not a good guy mm. toward God. He hates God. Yeah, and that's the uh, old A.W. Tozer quote that says the most important thought you could ever have is what you think about God. Because mm -hmm. Esau could have done great things in this world, but his thoughts about God were against him. Mm -hmm. So that's his, that's his legacy. Yeah. I remember I, a million years ago, it feels like now, I gave a, an illustration Um. And it's, it's a flawed illustration like all illustrations are, but it stuck with me when it came into my mind. And I was like, because I had a young kid and we had just gotten a puppy. So we had just got our chocolate lab Dutch. And I remember how excited my, you know, Caleb and, and Jacob were to see this puppy come in. And like they were just through the moon, you know, so excited. Uh, what? Over the moon? Yeah, over the moon or through the roof. You through the roof. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that was a weird fact. Okay, you're Nobody's right. Nobody's yeah. ever gone through the moon, I don't think. <laughs> through, through the roof of the moon. Um, through the roof, over the moon. And I remember thinking, like, this as a father is so fun to just look and see your kids, you know, beaming with this gift that you've given them. And then I had this thought, like, I wonder, because in the scriptures, it refers to us as being given from the Father to the Son, Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So in some sense, like, you are God's gift to Jesus, which is kind of a weird thing, you know, you're God's gift to Jesus, but you are. And I remember thinking, what if I gave this dog, you know, with the heart that I really wanted to make, I wanted to see my son's delight. I wanted to see them thrilled. I wanted to see them being loved and to love this dog and to build that relationship. That's cute. What if the dog turned and just mauled one of them? Like, what would I do to that dog? Like if, if, if they, you if put they, that dog down, yeah, I would. And a heartbeat. And it's like, in that moment, like having that realization of that illustration, I'm like, I'm, I'm the creature, huh. you know, I'm the creature that ultimately was created for the joy and delight of Jesus, the son, right? I am God's gift to Jesus, the son. And what have I brought him? Well, apart from redemption, I've only brought him pain. You know, the first time the Bible ever mentions pain, it's God right before the flood. It says his heart was filled with pain because of the wickedness of humanity and the way that they had turned his creation upside down. Like his heart was filled with pain. We never think of God as being heartbroken over us. But what did our sin require but for his son to be mauled to death? And it's like you can't, you know, we're, what does he do? Enjoy, he redeems us, but we're not entitled to it. Like, that's the point I'm getting. Like, Esau looks at that and says, I'm the center of the universe. What, what I want matters most. I'm hungry right now. I don't care about God's story. It's all about me. And so he mauls God's design for the world. Because his number one reason why Esau's created is to be in relationship with God. And all he does is cause God pain. Whereas Jacob... As messy as he is, as goofy as, like, you think of the untrained dog that poops all over the house but loves that little boy. Well, I can handle that dog, you know? Why? Because he loves my boy. He might not be trained. He might make messes all over the place in his life, but, man, his heart loves my boy. And that's the difference. Like, I mean, that's a terrible illustration maybe, but the reality is Esau is a vicious dog who hates his master. And Jacob is a very messy dog who loves his master. Now that helps me to see the story as it goes forward because there's a, from a human perspective, not God's man, Jacob can be unlikable, but he loves the promise. Mm. And so the takeaway is <laughs> as messy as you might get, grab hold of that promise. Go to the ends of the earth for the sake of that promise because at the end of the day, that's the kind of heart that God looks at and goes, I love Jacob, and I will call myself the God of Jacob. That's the kind of heart we want. Amen? Amen. Join us next week on the Out of Water podcast and have a blessed week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, 
riovistachurch.com slash out of water. 